we currently have American people supporting unions more than they have since uh, literally World War II, the early 50s, but it just doesn't get translated into union membership in the private sector. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Richard Freeman, who is the Herbert Asherman Professor of Economics at Harvard University. He is renowned for his work in labor economics on a very broad range of topics. Richard, welcome to The Work Goes On. We're glad to be here. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? Mostly I grew up in New York City. Um, I was born in a, in, in a in one of the worst towns in America, Newburgh, New York. If you look on the internet, you'll see it's it's often one of the top worst towns. But my father got a different job in New York, and that was influential. And then we moved to New Jersey, and that was also influential. Where, where did you go to school? Where did you go to elementary school? Elementary school started in Newburgh. <laughs> we lived on a chicken farm, indeed, and I would meet chickens regularly. What then? They, oh, then I got into the New York City school system. Uh, public school, 186 in Queens, and I skipped a year of school, which was very uh, good through the special progress program they have in New York. So where, where did you end up in New Jersey? The town is called Oradell, New Jersey, and uh, it's a reasonably wealthy suburb. And I was the uh, tough kid from New York who wanted to go to Greenwich Village and didn't particularly get on with the um, the other kids. I wasn't bullied or bullied, but I didn't quite appreciate their upper middle class uh, attitudes or whatever. <laughs> so you went to high school in New Jersey. Yep. And actually, when I first got into high school, the principal brought me to his room and he said, I see your record in New York is you are a bit of a troublemaker, kid. Don't you try any of that here. And what we're going to do is not put you in one of these advanced classes. We're going to put you into a um, sort of a not quite college class because I don't want to have you messing with the with the with with my kids. And so I spent my first year uh, actually in a class where the kids were not the fastest, and they became my friends. And I think that influenced me throughout my life to uh, paying attention not just to the hot shots and the smart guys and the rich guys, but fairly normal people. Richard, that's fascinating. I know you went to Dartmouth. How in the world did that happen? Very peculiar. Um, 
And when I got to the, the, the New Jersey school, I did not know what an Ivy League college was. I thought all guys who were cool intellectuals and smart people went to Greenwich Village and hung out in coffee shops. <laughs> and that was my vision of life. Um, and all these, eventually I did so well in the, um, in the, in the uh, first uh, class I took, first year, that they upped me to the uh, smart college type kids class. And I was the best kid in that class, defending my 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 uh, not so good classmates. I would always tell them, "These guys ain't so good. I'm beating them out in every test." <laughs> um, uh, and then uh, somebody just said to me, "You should apply to an Ivy League school." And at Dartmouth, they actually asked you to write an essay on your intellectual history. And uh, none of the other schools asked anything like that. And I wrote uh, this very truthful um, you know, essay about great, wanting to go to Greenwich Village, wanting to do this, dot, 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 dot. Uh, some of the things I just told you. And I got back a letter from the president of the university, uh, John Sloan Dickey was his name. And he said, kid, or you know, young man, uh, we want you here. <laughs> you have dot, 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 all the kinds of cool attributes that we're looking for. And I, I thought, hmm, that's pretty nice. The president of the university wants me there. I'm sure it went through some, um, you know, committee and he was told to say this and he didn't write the letter. But at that time I was, oh, wow, that's where I'm going. And that's where I went. That, that is actually quite a remarkable story. Now, I know that you ended up at Harvard, <clears throat> I believe, a student of John Dunlop's. How did that happen? Well, I, for, first, I, I graduated from Dartmouth. I skipped a year because I had – so I, I, I got out very early. I was very young. And I um, – my professor at Dartmouth was someone I, in, in labor economics, Martin Siegel. He, he was a – refugee from the Nazis in Poland and had been a hero in the U.S. Uh, Army, you know, being sent back overseas to to, to do things in, in uh, I suppose, using his Polish language. And he had been a Harvard grad and a student of Dunlop. And so that's, that made the, that connection uh, 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 for me. Marty Siegel, he was a well-known guy. Yes, he was a. He, he, I was very, very close to him. He was probably my best friend in college, um, and he was really smart. Always very thoughtful, very behavioral economics oriented, and I learned a lot from from him because he would always say, "Well, why is someone doing that?" He didn't say. I've got an optimizing model. I'm setting the marginal benefits equal to marginal costs. It's, you know, that's, that, that's fine as a framework, but you got to know what's going on in people's heads if you're going to be modeling that. And he also, uh, God, or God bless him, because I really, really was close with him. He always carried a fear that, that there were going to be Nazis or bad guys coming. Uh, from his experience in Poland, and I once he had a he once had an offer 
from Michigan to become a professor there. That was clearly a step up in the academic world because uh, you'd have Dartmouth was only undergraduates. Michigan was graduate students. Michigan had an industrial relations center. Uh, uh, Dartmouth, you know, just had him basically. And, and for a brief period, him and me as a student. Um, and he said to me, I, I can't go to Michigan. I know here there are no Nazis in town. It, it was very telling about what can happen to somebody when they've been, he and his wife were the, he said, the only people who were not killed by the Nazis in in in, um, in Warsaw uh, from his high school. So I, you could understand it and yeah, you could see how that, that created a tremendous bond between him and me. So now you're at Harvard at John Dunlop. Now that is, I, I actually met him a few times, a uh, very famous guy, and I guess extremely important at Harvard. Um, I always thought he was a very formidable, kind of off-putting person. What did you, how did you get along with him? Well, if, at first I, I, I avoided him. Um, for exactly the reason you said early. And I wanted to, to do more mathematical economics. My first goal was to do the math stuff. So I didn't take his course early on. And I took, the, uh, I took Simon Kuznets' course, which turned me a little bit against the mathematics in the sense of you have to measure things. And it's not much point to writing models if you don't have evidence for the models. And um, in my second year, I I was told by Marty Siegel, take his course. <laughs> and I did. And yet, he was formidable, but he also was very human. There was one incident where he, he showed some, um, I don't know, it, it, it made me feel very good. I was supposed to meet him at his Lit Tower office at, I don't know, to say uh, 10 o'clock. And I'd been out the night before with a girlfriend, and I didn't get up at 10 o'clock, as I should, <laughs> to, get, to get there. And I arrived there at 10.30, and he's pacing outside Lit Tower because you students had to be let in on a, it was a Saturday, or, or it was a Saturday, I'm pretty sure. And... And he's looking at me, he says, why are you late? And I said, thank you for waiting for, for me outside here. Mm, he said, well, you better have some good things to say. Why were you late? And I said, well, I was with a girlfriend. And he said, ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and that was a humanity connecting <laughs> notion. And I, after that, I said, okay, he understands people's foibles or that we're human. Even graduate students are human. And after that, I th things went well with him. What was your dissertation about? Well, my, my dissertation was the, actually it's my first book. The, uh, it was the, the, the labor market for college, college graduates. I was not interested in industrial relations. I was interested in the human capital and especially in, into the science job market. Um, in, in part because my uh, father and, and I say the, I'll say the U.S. Um, government and people like were all screaming, um, 
we need engineers. Nobody was screaming, we need economists. I don't know how you, if you had that. I had this thing of, you got to go into engineering. The country needs you as an engineer. And I found engineering boring. And so I didn't do it. Uh, um, and then I wondered, <laughs> as my PhD, hmm, what leads people to choose these fields? And so my main thesis article was this cobweb model of engineers, which showed them varying cyclically. You know, there's too many guys go into engineering, and then the wages and job opportunities go down. Then too few go on. And it was very much the kind of behavior you do not see in a perfect um, rational expectations world, uh, or that model doesn't fit that well. And then I always got a little suspicious after that, since it was very clear. You just, you can just see these curves <laughs> in the data. You know, Richard, I was going to ask you about your work on scientific uh, employment, STEM now, I guess we call it. I know you've worked in that area actually ever since. What's your take on the current situation? I mean, you still hear the same story, which is that uh, very few Americans want to take engineering degrees. Uh, many of our graduate students uh, are from abroad, and sometimes there's fights over that. What's your so that you, you've actually worked on this problem for most of your life? What's your current take on our policy towards this issue? Well, I think you're absolutely correct about the uh, people born overseas coming to our country. They make up uh, on the order of 40% of the uh, uh, PhDs we graduate. And in the in engineering and the real, the heavy STEM, you know, we, we economists can be under some definitions, we're part of the science group. So where social science can be recognized or it's viewed as not quite in that in that group but the, it's it's absolutely critical this country lives has always lived on immigrants coming in and 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 being with us and the um, right now it's 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 interesting there was a big boom in computer science graduates and people who do you know good coding and things like that and that market is falling because we have too many guys in it uh, so it's very similar to what I did in my thesis. You see, you 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 have periods where there's a shortage. A lot of people get in. Takes them three or four years to get their degree. By the time they get their degree, there's a lot of other guys getting the degree, and so it it, it still has this cyclic uh, component. But but the thing that troubles me the most nowadays. And, and before this podcast, I was indeed working on a paper on this. Um, it is the extent to which we have become a incredible research partner with the Chinese. And that's our big, big number of our people coming in. And, be, and the Chinese uh, students um, come to the U.S. because we have a great higher education system. And because obviously they know English and they may not know some other languages you know, for other countries. And that's been the biggest success partnership between two countries, I think, ever. Um, they come here. They work on our science engineering things. They go home. They keep working with us. And the 
the, the Trump uh, administration, China initiative, put a kick at that. And some of the issues with the, between the U.S. and China are also disturbing uh, that relation. And uh, we, we may see a decline in that uh, strong connection, and then the U.S. will probably find a different source country for immigrants uh, to come in, and that will be India. <laughs> and China will look much more to the Europeans for their uh, partnership. Uh, um, I like to tell my Chinese friends, please come to the U.S. You don't want to be a partner with the Russians, do you? <laughs> and everybody laughs because nobody really wants to work with the Russians. That's very interesting. And you're still working on this same problem, which is, uh, I guess, nothing that's going to end soon. Do you have any explanation for why American students are so reluctant to get into these uh, scientific subjects? Well, one reason is we have a lots of choice. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. If you're in some of the other countries, you are admitted as a student to medicine, or to engineering, and uh, it's a tougher business actually getting into university through uh, um, as we do. We go in. I don't know. I, I went when I first went to, to college. I had no idea what I wanted to major in. Um, I just knew I didn't want to become an engineer because <laughs> my father wanted me to, <laughs> and uh, I took. I took. For, for one period of time, I was taking only math courses. And then I got took economics and I met Professor Siegel and, it, I, and I said, oh, that's really interesting <laughs> what you're doing. And there's math in it and there's, uh, uh, you know, optimizing behavior and that's models. And I thought it was, it, was, it, it was great. You wouldn't have that occur that much in most other countries. So I think it's, it's a virtue in some sense that we, um, have these this more freedom of, of of choice in some in some sense more options and I think people in other countries with the same options would choose what the Americans do too not you know you, you can be uh, good in math and good in science and not want to be a uh, you know a nuclear physicist or an engineer I, I think we have we do have to turn to a subject that I know uh, I'm interested in and I think others too. Uh, your famous book, "What Do Unions Do," with uh, with the late Jim Madoff, um, the uh, that that book is certainly well known to economists. But I think outside of economics, it makes you especially well known. It's a book that's used by people in the law and in all other social sciences. First of all, how did you come to write that book? Well, the book was written for probably I'll, I'll say three three factors. One. I, I had I thought I had nothing much to say about unions because John Dunlop clearly knew all the union leaders and he knew all the business leaders and he he helped negotiate agreements and so on and so forth. So I said, man, I'm staying away from, from that. Uh, um, so, and then uh, I was asked to give a paper at an AEA meeting about a, a very different area. It was Albert Hirschman's uh, analysis of Exit Voice and Loyalty, that book. And Hirschman was one of my favorite uh, 
my colleagues at Harvard. Um, um, uh, he he could have, or he probably did spend a lot of time in uh, in uh, coffee houses in 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 uh, you know in New York City or places like that. He had this kind of, um, I don't know, d- d- different than a, a normal professor uh, th- things about him. And and then I, I looked at his book and I said, he talks about exit, but he's not talking about people quitting. He's talking about exit in a very abstract way. And I said, oh, this is quits. And what do unions do? They cause people not to quit because they get better work conditions and higher wages. And then I looked around and I said, gee, there's nobody in the, in the in the industrial relations area who really has sort of nailed this. And that started me going down the route of saying, well, what else have people not quantified in the about trade unions that would put the unions in a more um, scientific perspective? And and then the, the second thing was, as you said, the, the late Jim Medoff, he immediately grabbed hold of this and said, can I work with you on this? And uh, what topic should I touch? And we had discussions and um, – he then followed followed with a, with a, with a set of, of papers. The book came from he was the editor of Basic Books at the time. He came to my office, and I'm telling him what I, he would go to professors and say, "What are you working on?" And I said, and he said, "Why don't you make a book of this?" Bingo! I said, oh, "Okay." And he then helped very much uh, make the book the level that all the people outside of economics would uh, would read it and, and find it valuable. Um, so the book has very little, you know, it, almost none, I suppose, detailed econometric type things. It refers to papers. And so that the style that I learned from him was do your your deep scientific work in papers and but don't do that in a book because you're just gonna chase the readers away. And my dissertation book, I had the deep scientific stuff. There was chapters of a dissertation on the college job market, and that did not have as anywhere near the impact as as you note early the of uh, the, what the unions do. And if we, I'm sure, if we'd had the econometric stuff uh, that that you know was was being done on these different aspects of unionism, it just would have been read by, you know, industrial relations and labor experts, but by not too many other people. So that's a, it's a good lesson for everybody. If you want to speak more widely, do not give the details. But if you, of course, want to get things right, you better have the details someplace. That's right. And you had several papers with uh, Medoff. And, and and also in the book was that the unions were reducing profits of companies, and uh, and then the, the book was partly had to um, link these two phenomenon, and what 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 was going on? I mean, at one level, if the unions if the unions actually reduced productivity and raised labor costs, you know. The companies would go out of business. <laughs> that was not a good thing. So what what our interpretation 
ultimately was, was, yeah, there's some increase in productivity, but the, the productivity increase was not large enough to restore profits to what they would be without the union. So companies always had an incentive to fight the unions. And the fight was over uh, the, the, the profits. And the unions always had a reason to keep productivity up or raise it because they would get some of that if it, you know, if it showed up in profits. So it became much more of a game theoretic game between two partners where there's a place where you make joint benefits but in order to have the joint benefits, you also have to divide up the pie. And you can fight over that, and that's where you get strikes and so on. I can't resist asking you about, uh, there have been some efforts to unionize recently. Uh, some people are optimistic uh, on the union side, think that they will be successful, others are not. What, what do you think? Well, the one place I will predict <laughs> that they will succeed <laughs> is organizing graduate students and university people. They wanted Harvard. Uh, they, uh, they're trying to organize Boston University. I don't know what they're doing at Princeton, whether they're organizing or not, but I know there is, there's been an organizing committee. So uh, the unions do seem to be able to attract uh, some kind of labor. And it turns out it's almost the scientific guys that I started working on years ago. And I thought that that would not be the case, but it is. Um, outside of that, I, I the unions need a completely different model or something way to, to break the anti-union um feelings and strengths of the companies. And at one point, I proposed a model, which uh, we called it open source unionism, um, where they use the internet and they use, you know, sort of social media websites to get workers lined up. And that never took off. And I think the country need, needs them because we need, obviously, wage increases for normal people. Um, and we need more of the income to go to normal people. But they're still struggling to find a way to break through the strongest anti-union business community, you know, I would say in the world. You know, it's, it's, it may not be, there may be somewhere there's a country bigger. Because in Europe, you don't have the same problems. The British unions actually have increased their membership over the last, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Um, and in the U.S., the we currently have American people supporting unions more than they have since uh, literally World War II, the early 50s, but it just doesn't get translated into union membership in the private sector, which is the place they have to organize. You know, we're, we're coming to the end of our discussion, but I there's one more thing I'd like to ask you about that's just been come up recently, I guess you could say. You've probably noticed this too. In the period just really at, at toward the end of COVID, there was this jump in the wage rates of the lowest paid people in the U.S., but uh, it, it does look like there was one kind of a, I, I don't know if you'd describe it as a, a decrease in, uh, or maybe a, a decrease in the elasticity of labor supply 
uh, at the bottom of the distribution or something. But it seems as if there's been at least some closing of the very bottom of the wage distribution with the rest. But that, that's probably the first sign we've had of any decrease in inequality in the U.S. Uh, do you think that could continue? Do you think that will continue with the inequality that we have, or do you think it'll go the other way? If, unless there is the more union or other activity, um, um, I think it will it will diminish. A lot of that boost um, really, I think, was was connected with the federal government giving um, reasonable chunks of money to the people who were unemployed because you know their their, their restaurant was closed um, and. Uh, and that changed some of their attitudes towards 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 work and gave them a sense of, okay, the government is actually giving me more than I would have gotten from working for the restaurant for this period. And my labor supply decisions changed, as well as people, other people going and working from home. And, 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 and uh, so I think there has been, you're right, there's been a change in the, in the attitudes of workers does show up in the in the labor supply curve, um, but the reduction of inequality is it, it, it didn't start a trend. It was a, as you as I think you you, you, you phrased it, it was correct. There was a jump, <laughs> and and then since then it's shown no further trend towards the lower income uh, folk. If the Federal Reserve keeps raising interest rates. They will ultimately weaken the market for these people, and we will, quote, control inflation by making sure that average and low-paid people uh, suffer, um, which I think is a very old-fashioned and wrong policy for the country um, when, when the inflation has, is mostly due to uh, changes in uh, cost of supplies outside and, you know, food prices and uh, other things. It's not workers uh, pushing. I agree with you, especially because uh, we see the inflation in prices. Uh, of course, wages have not increased nearly as rapidly. So we have a decline in real wages and have had now for the last two years overall. Uh, and I, I do think it's a little wrongheaded. Uh, I, but in any event, that's a that's a topic for another for another conversation. I I appreciate so much your coming on. Uh, it's just been a, a great to talk to you. Uh, I think I first met you at the University of Chicago long before you were at Harvard. Um, you've been at Harvard a long time. Yes, I know you were at Chicago when Lewis was there. I always like to talk about him. Did you have an impression of him? You see, I loved everybody at Chicago. I think it was a great place. It, it, Except hmm, Milton Friedman once threw, told me not to go to his seminar. <laughs> that was my major negative thing. And, and the reason was very – I was raising what you would, would now say are behavioral economics questions. Uh, and and he he took me aside. I'll never forget this. He said, I don't, I don't want to hurt your feelings, Richard, but um, I don't want you in my seminar if you're going to raise these questions. I thought, what seminar? You're supposed to raise questions. <laughs> and he explained why. He said, we, we only have our economic tools 
and we can't look outside them or we're just going to go blind. You know, we, we won't know what's going on. And I'm so happy that Chicago is a, is a strong place for behavioral economics now because I, I, I didn't take offense at him personally. I just was, okay, I will go to Gary Becker's seminar where I can say these things and no one will, and Gary would never say, oh, <laughs> you can't say that. It's outside the mainstream of optimizing whatever it was. And, and Greg Lewis was like a, a, a sort of a father figure there for me. I always liked him too. Uh, our guest today has been Richard Freeman, the Herbert Asherman Professor of Economics at Harvard University. Please join us again for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.